Good morning. Good morning. I'm so glad you made it on this very rainy and lightning-filled day. But inside here, we're filled with sunshine. I'm here because Tim is out in the Dells in Oregon talking about the aging brain and so on. And so hopefully we can carry on and learn something about our Lord today. We're so glad to have the freedom that God created a day for our freedom to think about who he is, his creation, how we fit in, and to come to love him as a free and um, understanding participant in our relationship with him. We are talking today about family seasons. What have they seen in your house? This is the second quarter, lesson 12. And let's begin with prayer. Dear Father, we are so glad that you made us and that you saved us. We who are healed, are healing, are meant to reach out to those who need healing. Please guide us in learning how best to do that through our own experiences, through our own homes. We pray especially for those who are injured and ill today, among those in our class and in the, uh, in the listening population as well. We have a special prayer for Tina's sister, for Teresa's mom, and one of our class members, Eve, is ill. Please be with us in these tough times Give us healing, give us understanding, and give us compassion and comfort, and that we in turn may give compassion and comfort to those who are wounded and healing and injured. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this lesson is supposed to be about your house, your life, your home, how you can use it to be a witness. If we have time, I'd like to expand that to your internal house, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible calls. And then maybe our church house as well. What have they seen in our church house? So the memory text on Sabbath is, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2, 9. So they're, they're beginning with why we do what we do. Why do we want to use our homes? Why do we want to use our lives? Why do you? It makes you feel happier when you use your life, when you use what, you, what God's giving you. You just feel better. Anybody else? Glorify others. Sometimes I've been embarrassed to have people at my house, for example, because it's not appearing at, my, at its best, therefore not my best. <laughs> and yet I remember hearing a, a well-known public speaker saying that many people would not even invite her home because of who she was and because their house wasn't perfect or they didn't have marvelous food. She says, I'll tell you what, I wanted to be included. I wanted the social connection with people. I didn't want to be alone in a strange city talking. I would have gone for a peanut butter sandwich, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know, simple food. But the hospitality is what people care about more than anything. I feel like sometimes if your house isn't at its best, that may actually make people feel better. 
because they'll say, well, my house looks better than this. Yay. <laughs> also makes people feel comfortable and at home. Uh, also, there's been some homes I've been in that where I would say too perfect. I don't know if you have, where you go in and, you know, everything's non-touchable. I had relatives like that who had plastic over things. Everything was white, and then they had plastic over that. And you just, when we were kids, you know, my mom would say, don't touch anything, <laughs> don't go anywhere, don't do anything, just sit there and be good. The house was not inviting, not homey. So I'd say that, you know, as an overview, if we're talking about our actual house, sometimes we get, um, I don't know, Embarrassed? Focused on self? Yes. As a promotion of who I am and the things I've gotten and how amazing this all is. And we'll be talking about that in this lesson. Uh, Paragraphs one and two on Sabbath say, What have heavenly angels seen? What kind of spirit permeates our residences? Can one smell the scent of prayer? Is there kindness, generosity, love? Or tension, anger, resentfulness, bitterness, and discord? Will someone who's there walk away thinking Jesus is in this home? These are important questions for all of us to ask ourselves regarding the kind of home we have created. So this week we'll look at some of the issues that can make for a wonderful home life, despite the inevitable tensions and struggles that homes today face. I want to just talk for a minute about why we're nicer to other people than we are to our own family sometimes. That may be only my personal experience, but based on the people's heading, head nodding, I would say that I'm not alone, that sometimes when you're in public, you are the nice you, but when you get home, why do we treat our families Worse than we would treat people that we, that we want to impress in the public. I think expectations. We expect more out of our family than we do a total stranger. Mm-hmm. We know, as, as parents, we know that we brought our children up different than what they're acting, or just different things like that. We expect more out of our family, and when we don't get it, it makes us mad. Maybe it's a lack of control. I don't know. Donna? Be a lack of our own need our own heart needs to be cleaned up because if we are really treating our family worse are better than I mean others better than our family it's really an indication of our own heart desperately needing clean a house cleaning so before we talk about using our house we need to talk about our house (laughs) we won't do that to those that we love the most, if our heart's right, we won't do it. It's also it's easy to put on a show for five minutes with a stranger versus three hours with a family. Well, three years. There's <laughs> also an aspect of you feel safer with your family, um, and so you're not as not as likely to pretend. Um, and so if you've had a bad day, your family knows it. Now, that doesn't excuse you know treating your family poorly. I'm just saying that, that often you kind of let down that guard. Mm-hmm. Well, I think all those are, are good reasons. I think the, that the family will love you, you hope, no matter what. 
<laughs> no matter you're tired, you're worn out, you're agitated by your day, and you just want to be heard, <laughs> you know, you, you let it out on the people when you get home, huh, you know, and then uh, they don't see you at your best, let's say. Maybe I shouldn't brag in front of all these people, but my husband always treats me better than he treats anybody else. <laughs> there you go. Go, Mike. <laughs> Tom at work, and he always answers the phone. I'm careful to talk for one minute. <laughs> well, that's that's a, f- a good example for us all. I too. Her, husband, her father is a very important executive. And he travels all around the world. And he said to his daughter, whenever you call me, I will always answer your call, always take your call. And, you know, even though she seldom sees her father, she feels really important to him. I could say the same thing about my husband. You know, he calls me through the day. He'll always take my call. He always calls me before he comes home. He treats me like a princess. So when you get tired and worn out at the end of the day and the things you would normally just keep to yourself, start seeping out. (laughs) That's probably one of the things that gets me is that my precious husband is very patient with me. He's very calming to me, you know, and helps me to relax because I tend to be, you know, go-go, and he's like, chill out. (laughs) So he's a nice balance to me, but sometimes he'll get the brunt of me feeling tired. And when I feel tired and I don't get enough sleep, let's say, or if not feeling well, the tendency will be to notice and bother with things that normally I would just, you know, let go. But I don't think that makes, he doesn't like that. (laughs) Usually when I'm tired, it's at the end of the day, and he's tired too. So what can we do to follow the example of James and Michael? You know, I was just visiting my daughter, and, you know, you can tag team. Like, they have small children, and they kind of see who's the one who's, feeling the worst, and the other one kind of takes over for a little bit, you know, kind of watching, how are you doing, how are you doing, who needs help right now? So being sensitive, and I like the idea of working as a team, because I think in marriages today, and therefore in your homes, so much of the United States way, at least, is individuality, and you know, do I win this argument? Do I, you know, get my way? Do I, do I, do I? We went to a marriage seminar one time. It was called Marriage as a Dance, run by men. And it was surprising. They were there in jeans and sweatshirts talking about marriage, where I'm used to, you know, maybe going to ones run by women. They were using male analogies for things. And one of the things I remember them using is the idea of a football team. They said, is, does any one person on a team when? No. Oh, in football or many of these uh, games, either the whole team wins or the whole team loses. And if you can, if we began to think, well, of course, they're encouraging us to think, does that apply to your marriage? It's a team. If one person is always being made to feel bad, always made wrong, you know, the pers- one person can never say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You know, I'm learning, forgive me, any of these type of things. If one person is losing in this marriage seminar we went to, the team is losing. You have to begin to look at yourselves as a team, even as a family, look at yourselves as a team. 
we're better as a team because we have we utilize our various strengths just like in a football team would you know the have someone be the kicker and that's all he does or defense or the quarterback or whatever that's all that's what they do best so that's where they're utilized and together the team wins or together the team loses so to follow up on your analogy Sometimes the person, I don't know enough about football to do this, but sometimes the person who's the goalie, I'll go soccer, he might not always be. He might, he might take another position. You know, that happens in a family too. Maybe one person always does some certain thing, but at some point in, in time, they're not able to do that thing. And then someone else has to step in and do that. You know, you kind of, you're always watching to see who needs what when and being willing to switch roles as needed. Yes. Well, not only that, but, you know, I think when when everybody became more individualized and families are not surrounded by other families, you know, other family members, um, that that impacts our children as well. Because I was, I've been a single mom for like 20 years, you know, close to 20 years. And, um, and I was just talking to my friend this morning, and it, it, the influence of other people kind of also conveying your principles, your beliefs to your children besides just you in a world that's saying opposite of what we're saying is key. And I think that's had a huge impact on me and my kids and my family and a lot of families. So that would suggest that church as a larger family. Absolutely. You know, extended family and your church as well. You know, it does take a village to raise children, especially in this day and age. Well, and I tell people, I don't know if this is true among other types of churches, but we're, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and I, you know, it, we're a big uncertain world we live in, and the family's a little bit of a safety net. I'm lucky because I have cousins everywhere. <laughs> My mother was one of nine children, and we have bunches of family everywhere, which is a nice security net because if something really bad happened, you know, family's there to kind of pitch in. But in the church world, I also feel even greater security because, you know, you can travel anywhere in the world, and your church family Somebody there would help you if you needed something. I met a guy from uh, Taiwan, and I always like to ask people when they've come from other countries, what do you, what's your biggest surprise when you come here to America? And he said, you're all such individuals. I think in the culture, uh, everything is brought, you are, you are a member of the society, you fit in with, we, luckily, he, we had a lot of chance to talk. But in his culture, you are raised to be part of the unit called the nation. <laughs> you aren't an individual as much as you are a giant team member of China, for example. Uh, you are trained from childhood to support and obey and be part of where you fit in in that culture. That's where you are. You're not for yourself your life is for the country so if you in our country i think maybe we're very individualistic and i agree with him we are all about us but when we come to christ we shouldn't be all about us we are in a different environment and we are sort of opposite to what the world would suggest <laughs> how i'm worth it you know <laughs> you see commercials you hear people you know you are worth so much yourself. It's not what you contribute, it's what you have and you get. So this Sabbath, we're talking about what you contribute more than the other way around.
But I like the idea of a, of a marriage and of a family and of a church as a team approach. I think we can learn a lot from the team approach from other cultures who look at, at life more in a team manner. Because in this marriage seminar we went to, they said the only way a marriage can win is if if you work out each problem that comes up in a win-win situation. Do whatever it takes to find a solution to your problem where both people win. Pray, counsel, read, get support from people, get advice, whatever. Find some way for both of you to win because that's the only way your team is going to win. And so it was a whole different approach to marriage seminars than I had ever seen. And I think it also applies to the family. You marry someone, then you maybe try to turn them into who you are. Well, they aren't who you are. And they, it's better to utilize the strengths of both people for the team. So the team will win. The team will prosper, will survive the bouts of evil that we are up against every single day. You know... I have a note here. <laughs> I don't know if this is the best place to put it, but I have personally well known, know well, I should say, people who have left the church over what they have experienced in the church. I know people who were good friends with, with ministers and church leaders' children who spent a lot of time in their home, who the children from those homes, neighbors, with open windows, hearing this very well-respected person, the way they behaved at home to their children, to their wife, their husband, but mostly it was the, the wives and the family that got the brunt of this. And I've known people who, who totally disrespected church leadership based on the difference between the way they were in public and the way they were in private. So if we think that how we're behaving and treating our families and treating each other is not being noticed, I will say it is. And it can have devastating consequences to the people who are watching and judge God by how we treat each other. They shouldn't, but they do. And Why shouldn't they? They shouldn't judge God by what we do because we're... Okay, I thought you said they shouldn't judge us. I, I think it's intelligent to make... Uh, certain judgments about behaviors like that. Yes, but... At, you shouldn't then extrapolate and say, well, God must be like that as well. Well, no. So that's that's a problem, that, however. That their God, the God they worship, has changed them into, you know, to be the way they are. And I can say, likely, I'm not interested in the God you're talking about because... If you're any reflection of the God that you worship, and yeah. we're talking about I don't want to know that God. God. No, that's a good so point. By the, we say the fruits, by the, your fruits you'll know them. That's in the positive sense. It also works in the negative sense, but it reflects a misunderstanding of true God. But it's their understanding of God that I would be rejecting on the basis of their poor treatment of their family. And the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. When I was young, I thought that don't curse. Now I think, well, that's probably included, but a wider view of that would be, don't say you're God's person if you're not. 
more more harm has been done to God by people who say they're gods. <laughs> I like what Tim says when people come to his office. He's a psychiatrist, and they say he'll ask them, you know, what uh, do you believe in God? And they'll say no, and he'll say why not? Well, the God. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. So they begin this litany of terrible things that they've seen or judged God for that people have done. And his response is, good for you. I don't believe in God, that God either. Let me tell you about the God I do believe in. And then tell the truth about God. But people do judge God by how we behave. Oh, I thought I saw an arm, but it was going around a wife. Yay. <laughs> so go into Sunday's lesson. It starts off with mistakes first mistakes that that we could do in our home and they use Hezekiah for those of you who aren't familiar with the Hezekiah story found in second chronicles 32 and Isaiah 38 and 39 to just kind of uh, hop skip and jump through that story King Hezekiah of the Israelites was uh, great rich honored went to his head began to disrespect dishonor not respond to the kindness shown he was told by God that he would die, and but Hezekiah begged and pled, and God answered his request, gave him, said, I'll give you 15 more years, and I'll save you from the king of the Assyria. So Hezekiah asked for a sign, because I guess he didn't believe God uh, just saying it. So God caused the, the sun to go back one stair. He had a choice forward one stair or back. He picked back because he thought that was harder <laughs> for some reason than going forward an hour. Well, don't, don't you, you know, the countries around have astronomers and so on, and they noticed that the sun changed, went back. So they also heard that Hezekiah was sick and had recovered. So what did Hezekiah do with this time, this extra time? We have to ask ourselves, was it wise to go ahead and give Hezekiah that, that extra 15 years? What did he do with it? So the king of, of Babylon heard about his illness and recovery, and they were watching the signs and so on, sent a letter with his son and uh, some gifts to uh, talk about this event. Instead of giving God the glory and teaching them about his heavenly father and what he had done for him and how he had healed him and all that and giving God the glory and without apparently asking God for his input in this matter, Hezekiah showed the envoy everything in his treasury. So the temptation, I will say, just jumping from that, the tendency is to show off by say our homes, <laughs> you know, show just you're there to see my home. Well, in this case, he thought the thing I, the, the greatest thing I can share with these people is all of these wonderful treasures I've amassed. But God sent a message through Isaiah saying, asking, what have you shown these envoys? And he said, everything. I showed him everything. And so he said, because you did, I want to say the Babylonians will be back and they'll take it all. Not only do they take the, all of the stuff, they'll take your, your own, uh, and, you know, progeny, and they will become, some of them will become eunuchs in the, um, king of Babylon's, uh, what do you call it? Castle. <laughs> no, not castle. Yes, Rachel. Maybe I'm taking what you're about to say. 
but there's a principle here that we see Hezekiah not obeying that Joseph did. So when he's called in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, oh, I heard that you understand dreams, and Joseph says, no, it's not in me. God will give the answer. And that was a principle, Sister White says, of Joseph's whole life, that he always kept his religion prominent. It was never, he never hid his beliefs in God. He always made them give credit for everything. And same thing with Daniel. And I think it's so easy. I think about myself as a teenager. It's so easy to pretend that you're going along with the crowd, even though you don't prove. And Joseph didn't do that. He always made evident that he was a worshiper of the true God, even in a place where he was the only one. And that was Hezekiah's big opportunity. Mm-hmm. And look at the king of Babylon. On the reverse side, he says, look at this great Babylon that I have created and so on. And he spent the next seven years as an animal. <laughs> you know, God really loved, must have really no, loved Nebuchadnezzar. He put him through the mill. I mean, he really tried in every way he could think of to show him who God really is and to have him worship God as the true creator. That, you know, the, one of the chapters in the book of Daniel is written by Nebuchadnezzar, and I believe he'll be in heaven. Well, God worked hard. You know, he, he gave him uh, all kind of information. And, and you know why God tries to get to the leaders is because they have such influence over, at his point in time, the entire world. And uh, so he spared no expense, <laughs> shall we say, in trying to teach uh, Nebuchadnezzar. That's why Daniel could say to Belteshazzar, you knew all this. Mm-hmm. It was not hidden. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me go back to here and say that ultimately the Babylonians did come. They invaded. They removed the Israelites from their nation, just as God had said. Also during that extra 15 years, he sired Manasseh, who was, the Bible describes, the worst king Israel ever, ever had. So... You know, you kind of, if you ask for something from God and he gives it to you, I guess the moral of the story is ask with um, God's guidance in what you do and use what he gives you wisely. Yes, Eve. I'm so glad to see you, by the way. Yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> Here she is. Here she is. <laughs> yeah, trying to stay away from her, but it's possible. Um, but... You see a glimpse of Hezekiah's heart um, at the end. I mean, so if, if God tells you you're going to die, and you're like, no, please, you're begging, please. So God gives you more time. But you see his, his true heart at the very end of that story when God says, well, here's what's going to happen. And Hezekiah says, well, you know, this is great. It's not going to happen while I'm alive. You know, it's, it's so self-centered. And, you know, I think it was God's mercy saying, you're going to die. Because if he had if he had actually died then, things could have been different. Yeah. Significantly. And this was the same Hezekiah that looked to the Lord and spread out the letter and how do I deal with this invading force, you know, the Assyrians, and, and really relied on God. You can see the ark... There's so many times when you look at the Bible in the arc of people's lives, um, they are trusting at one point, but it, and you can see why Jesus said, you know, it's harder for a rich person to enter heaven because 
in a lot of instances, Solomon, Hezekiah, a lot of people, when they, when they got influence, honor, riches, and so on, that's where their focus went. And so uh, you can see why God would not want very many people to be put in that position. But if you are in the position, like Abraham, for example, David, and so on, to use your wealth, use your honor, and so on, to honor him and to forward the message and so on, uh, we have been we have been uh, very grateful for people who support this ministry. Very grateful. In this lesson here on on. Uh, Last bit of Sunday, actually. In what what ways are you able to use your home to witness to others? Every visit to the homes of Christians is an opportunity for people to meet followers of Christ. Uh, Christians may find ways that are sensitive and appropriate to the occasion and share good news. Uh, Christians are not called to show off their material prosperity or accomplishments, though they may recognize them as as blessings from God. Uh, What other ways do you think you could actually use your home to witness to others? You think have a welcoming atmosphere and welcome those who come uh, with a smile and being yourself and being loving, caring. And I have just the cleanliness and the order and simplicity, the hospitality, courtesy, respect. Donna? I appreciate how the birds have used their lovely home to bless our group. And Lori, too. Yes, and Lori, too. It's, it's important to remember our homes are being used as a witness but for, for one thing or the other. Yeah, I, I think the focus of this is how he's as a positive witness. Yes. If, if, if we invite anyone, a friend, stranger into our home, it's, it's a witness, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so Monday's lesson, Family First, it starts off by saying, by um Mentioning various people, how they use their personal uh, acquaintances in the witness as a witnessing opportunity. They use the example of Andrew. He's actually one of my favorite disciples. We hear a lot about John, Peter, and so on. But who who thinks very much about Andrew? <laughs> I like Andrew because he wasn't a spotlight kind of guy. He was a man of action. If he saw a need, he went and did it. An example would be when he heard about Jesus, because actually Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist first. And he's one of the ones that heard John the Baptist say, Hold the Lamb of God. So then he moved from John the Baptist to Jesus. And when he found out, he believed that he'd found the Messiah, the first thing he did was go find his brother Simon, who we know as Peter, and said, We found the Messiah, <laughs> and brought him immediately to Jesus. And then Jesus and Peter got their own relationship going. But Andrew was the one that was enthusiastic, went immediately and found someone, and said, Look what, look what I found. He was also the one that went out in the feeding the multitude and found the little fish, you know, and the few loaves and so on, and said, Well, I found these, <laughs> upon which the basis of all feeding all the 5,000 occurred, or there's probably more than 5,000. That was just men. But um, so Andrew was a little bit of a man of action, kind of quiet, never the one who just jumped in and, like Peter, is always jumping in with some word or another. Uh, Andrew was a behind-the-scenes more guy, you know, who actually got something done. Then it mentions uh, Naomi. She had a Moabite. She had two Moabite daughters-in-laws. Then her husband and her both her sons died. And so she told the girls, go on back to your families. 
what do I have for you? And one went, and the other one, Ruth, came with her and said, your God will be my God. I'll go wherever you go. I'm with you. So it looked like she was converted to me. She went with Naomi, even though Naomi, even though she was discouraged. No, go back home to your family. I don't have anything to offer you. I don't have any more sons. I'm too old to have any more to give you. So, but because of Ruth's affection and what she saw in Naomi's Naomi's life and family and so on, she trusted and wanted to go there rather than stay in her own Moabite community. And so. Because of that, she was sort of grafted into the Israelites. She ended up marrying Boaz. She became a progenitor of Jesus. So that, that was their using, in the lesson is using Naomi as an example of somebody who in their own home and in their own influence won someone to God who was a Moabite. And I think another thing that I, I think of under family first is I'm, I think the greatest of all miracles that Jesus did, and I think what we should pray for, is his insight. The Bible says he, no one needed to tell him anything about them because he knew all people. And yet we're, all Ellen White says that we, there's nothing that he did that we couldn't do uh, if we had that connection with God. The miracle of insight into people, I think, how, what they need, how to approach them, in the best way, the way they understand, the best way to minister to them. That is, uh, that is a blessing from God that we should be praying for, I think, because we, we really could use guidance in how to talk to people. I think it's why we have maybe four Gospels, because there's all types of people, and even God knows that not everybody gets it the same way. You know, you have a left-brain Matthew who's who's busily uh, thinking of all the details. He's the only one that puts the genealogy together because he has to know that Jesus came from the right genealogy. You have Mark, who's a who's a hop, skip, and jump guy. Like oh, immediately he did this and immediately he did that. He was the shortest gospel, and he was like for people who want to get to it. You know, then you have Luke, who's a doctor, very analytical, wants to put things in the order and in truth, and so he organizes and researches and puts. A lot more about healing into his. Then you have John, who was the youngest of the disciples, and he was more in the the background, the meaning to everything. So you have different ways of of thinking about God and different ways of coming to God. And the Gospels approach each person differently for that reason. In fact, two of the Gospels weren't even written by the disciples that, you know, like the only real disciples that were with Jesus the whole time were Matthew and John. Luke was a doctor. He was actually Greek, I think. And the... Um, he traveled extensively. Yes. Yeah. But he wasn't one of the original disciples that we think of. Right. And neither was Mark. So, anyway, in our homes, regular habits of spiritual, um, personal family worship are to be encouraged. Uh, the lesson points out. But I want to add, too, that if you want to be a ministry to your own family, to your own children, these sessions of worship should be appropriate to the child's age, should be short, interesting, um, related to their age level so that they can understand it and find it interesting. I mean, I know a lot of people who grew up in religious homes <laughs> and had worship and were totally turned off by that worship. 
they didn't get it. They didn't like it. They didn't understand it. And for them, it was, it felt like a waste of time. So yes, I agree. It's not it's great to have family worship and we should. And definitely personal worship as well, but make it appropriate to the persons. If you're wanting to be a missionary to your own family, this is something that you should think about it. Yeah, Rachel. So let's hear some thoughts from people in the class about what has made family worship good for them. I'm interested in ideas. Personal stories or personal testimonies about how how God uh, helped them in their lives. Personal stories. Something that's relevant, not contrived, and that's a that's a balance because unless you plan something, it doesn't happen. But if you just plan it and jam it in there, very much, you know, it means nothing. We're going to read our chapter. Valuable, but relevance is very important. I become an Adventist when I was six years old, and uh, my mother she liked to sing songs. And I still remember the song. And I think I also teaching my children, you know, memorize the Psalm twenty three. And those things uh, really mean so much to me because I left the church, but I still, I never went to bed without a prayer. Prayer, teaching the children how to pray and ask the Lord for forgiveness, you know. And I'll tell you, I, I do a fair amount of singing, and a lot of the singing is revolving around tech verses of the Bible and so on. And it's easy to remember those verses because I've learned them through song. You know, and I, and really when I'm reading the Bible and I come across those verses, I can't read them without the song actually happening in my head. <laughs> when the kids were little, there was a commercial on TV from the Latter-day Saints, and I'll never forget it because it was talking about every Wednesday, you should have family time and give affirmations. So one thing that we just decided to do when the kids were little was to do affirmations, which would put their mind in a positive way toward everybody around them. They had to go this way and say something good that they like about their brother or sister and then come back around. And it just made things more enjoyable and worship went a lot better because you're looking at a positive thing. You have something to laugh about. Yes. I think you need to make, for the children, worship needs to be fun. Uh, It needs to be short. You need to give them time to talk instead of you doing all the preaching at them because they don't like that. And you might use a lot of pictures. I led out in uh, the kindergarten too over in the big church for years and we used, I used a lot of things for the kids to hold and you can do it by, uh, Tim, do you want to hold this for me? Well, sit there while I tell you this story quietly and then we'll have a song and you can hold it, you know. And you can get them to be quiet for something very short that you're doing, but it has to be short. Excellent. I have a Jewish friend who says that um, they begin learning their alphabets and uh, reading and all that sort of thing at three years old. And one of the foundations of Jewish culture is to actually take a subject and, and really talk about it, you know, really investigate it and research it, you know, and just toss it back and forth. And it doesn't matter how much more authority a rabbi or a parent or somebody, somebody like that would have, they just have to know more and they ask all the questions and they, you know, put all their little, you know, immature or whatever perspectives into it and they they get back something that's valuable. So I think 
instead of condescending or preaching down, just like uh, Peggy just said, um, we need to make sure that, that we have something that is, is truly interesting, that is relevant to the, uh, the time that we would spend. And, and of course, uh, everybody appreciates brevity. Yes, there's a saying in speaking. It says, stand up to be noticed, speak to be heard, sit down to be appreciated. <laughs> if you, once you hit oil, stop drilling is another one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Similar theme. I was treating a patient one time who was a retired Adventist pastor, and I was discussing an upcoming teaching event that I had to do and soliciting some suggestions from him. And he said, well, whenever I was preparing for a sermon, I tried to think of a woman's skirt. Oh, where are you going with this, Cliff? (laughs) He said, when I was preparing a sermon, uh, it needs to be long enough to cover the important points and short enough to be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that one. I've tried to to apply that when (laughs) I'm up there. Or teaching adjunct over at Southern, or yeah, I don't have my own children, but if if I were, uh, I think it's a good um, I think it's a good framework to uh, to work under if you're if you're holding worship uh, for children. God bless them; their attention spans are limited. And today, especially, I know teachers who say that you know there used to be before it was all the iPads and the everything. The attention span used to be greater, and now it's practically nat-like. Extend this because we've been talking about worship in terms of children, but worship is actually for also for adults in the family. Yeah. Well, sure. So what are, some, what are some people doing? Well, same principle. Same principle <laughs> with adult oh, minds. Sure I I personally love astronomy, and I love the astronomy. NASA has an astronomy picture of the day website. You can see archive in the archives years, decades of of stuff that the telescopes have seen. We can see galaxies fourteen or so billion light years away. I don't have a concept of how far light can travel in that time, 14 billion light years, but we're still seeing galaxies that far away, gaining new insights into this universe that God oversees and created. So I've printed off a fair number of those that I really found interesting and made a book out of it. And so when children or adults of age or express any kind of interest in that, I will like go through the book. It has, um, it has the astronomer's interpretation of what they see and i especially love the ones where the astronomers have no clue (laughs) there's these amazing bullets coming out of orion for example and when they first were coming out the the astronomer said we don't know why they're going why where they came from why they're going so fast and so on but i will sit down and kind of go through some of the most interesting parts with people children who are of age to appreciate it and that's that's God's creation. You know, sometimes at the end of my day, I will look at the astronomy picture of the day and look at the universe that I can't see but is out there. Um, then I have a, another site I like called the Iris Seismic Monitor, which talks about the earthquakes that are happening here on the Earth. They're only the 4.0 and above uh, magnitude earthquakes. And there, when, uh, when I first started that website, there might be 315 in a month. 
Now it's often 650, 700, 800 of these earthquakes in a 30-day span on this world. So sometimes to gain perspective of where I am in this universe and where we are in time, <laughs> I will go and look at the website. I'll talk about that to, to people or to kids and look at the universe and see kind of you gain a perspective of this you dot on this little dot of a planet and this little dot of a of a solar system and galaxy and so on. And I, I think those kind of things are a way to learn about God that isn't preachy per se. It's fascinating and it's educational and you have pictures to go with it and some sort of a description that all links back to God. And those are things I respond to, <laughs> at least. I have a kind of inquisitive mind, and I like learning more about things, like Ken was saying, go into more depth about things. And those things fascinate me, and the children I've talked with, they're like fascinated too. They can't grasp, I can't even grasp some of those distances. The kids can't either, but you can grasp. That's a large universe we live in. And it puts your, your, what God did for you, what God was able to come and do for our little speck in the universe, what he was willing to do for us. It gives you a whole new perspective. Yeah, Brian. That fascination you just talked about, I can answer Rachel's question. I, I have, I know a late 60s individual that grew up in the church, and what she remembers is the austere, Emphasis on reverence when you're in the sanctuary. She was scared to death. Can't open her mouth, can't make a squeak. If your shoes squeaked, you're... And that's what she remembers about church and God. So that balance between reverence and awe... I like Tim's explanation about being awe of God, not, not scared of Him. But I think when we start to see what you're talking about, the beauty that draws us. If, if His love doesn't draw us, we're not going to get there by scaring ourselves to death. That's, no, that's totally impractical to scare ourselves into heaven. We've got to learn of Him and love Him. And one of the best ways is Scripture. Sit down and peel it apart and start putting it in your own words and asking God to show you something. Just one verse. doesn't have to be all day long. Just one verse. Uh, it can bring... Well, it makes me think, looking at the time, I'm actually going to probably jump to Friday, what I have under Friday's lesson, because it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Uh, There are, talking about the church as a home, our church home. I looked this week at um, Desire of Ages by Ellen G. White, and there are some twice that Jesus cleansed the temple. (laughs) Somehow I only remembered one, but he actually cleansed the temple twice. And it's well worth reading, and I have it in the notes, so you can go online and and find that. The whole chapter, chapter 16, in his temple, that was about the first cleansing, and then chapter 65, the temple cleansed again. And it's really interesting that in both cases... His his commanding divinity, she said, flashed through humanity, and for the the rulers couldn't figure out. Even they felt chagrined afterwards as to why they felt compelled to leave the temple when he commanded them to. 
after the first cleansing, they thought, what was I thinking? You know, I'll never do that, given another chance. Well, they did it again. Jesus, uh, she talks about how the, the temple resembled what was really going on in their hearts. The lowing of it, it was like a cattle yard, and there was a lot of theft going on, and the rulers and priests were involved in it. She said, by the second time Jesus cleansed the temple, it was actually worse than the first time. And they had, now the priests themselves were actually involved in the theft and the selling and so on. It verily, she said, it verily represented what was going on in their actual hearts. But the most interesting thing is when they rushed out, the people who didn't rush out, you think there's, and it described, to me, I was thinking, this is two types of people. There's only two types of people. There's people who are who open their heart to God, people who don't. No matter where you think you are on the scale, the Bible only talks about two groups of people, the sheep and the goats, the wicked, the righteous, the saved and the lost, so on and so forth. There's only two groups, no matter how many religions there are, no matter who we are, what we think we've decided for or against. There's actually, in spiritual terms, there's two groups. And one group in these scenarios came into the presence of God and felt they had to leave. They couldn't, they couldn't stay. They, they felt, when he looked at them, they felt the way people will at the end of time, that he read their souls. He, they felt, they knew that he, he was delving deep inside and there's nothing they could hide from him and they had to leave. But there's another group, those that stayed. And I found the most interesting thing was that when this, especially the part where she talks about the second cleansing, when people, the rulers and the people who are afraid of God <laughs> rushed out, they were met by people coming in with their sick. And I didn't, I just didn't remember this at all. So I'm glad I had a chance to revisit it, that the people coming out of the sanctuary were telling people what horrible things were going on in there that, you know, they were, uh, there was a wild man in there and uh, could be dangerous and all that. And some people turned back because of what these people were saying about God. But others didn't turn back. They weren't dissuaded by what people were saying. They had their sick. They knew Jesus was the last hope they had. And they went anyway, despite what people tell them that were leaving the sanctuary. So they came in and Jesus after, sat down with them, was healing them, was teaching them. She said some of the little children were falling asleep on him as he was teaching the people. It was just precious. And so eventually the rulers came back after they got over their fears and they they crept back because they weren't sure. They thought that he was just going to now he's going to take the kingship of Israel. And so they crept back in and to see what he was actually what his next step was going to be. And he when they looked in there, they were amazed because they saw they heard voices, men's, women's voices, mostly children, praising and so on, making noise. And what made me think of that, of uh, <clears throat> what Brian was saying, was that the church leaders, instead of being, wow, and impressed and amazed at this, cha- you know, at, at what was happening in the temple, they were put out, they were put off by it because it was not reverent. It was, and here they've been selling it was like a livestock auction barn. I don't know if you've ever been to one. I have. And it's a lot of noise and a lot of stuff around and not good smelling things and so on. All this was going on in the temple. And yet the priests didn't 
see that at all as a problem. They saw praising God and children making noise and and thrilled at the, you know, blind being able to see and so on and so forth. I found, I thought, there's a lot that can be learned from that, in not only in that setting, but in our setting. <laughs> what people find problematic in our worship setting. Sometimes it's driven by culture, and some cultures prefer one type of, of uh, praise, and others are taught some other form. Uh, I've been at numerous different kinds of churches, and uh, <laughs> always enjoy the variety. But apparently... The leaders don't always enjoy the variety of what's being uh, presented. So I uh, I just wanted to jump over to that because we're running short on time, and I didn't want to leave that. I've actually printed out a fair amount of the different, what I thought was the highlights of these um, these chapters in The Desire of Ages. But if you do get a chance, those are well worth reading because what we need, if our homes are going to be a ministry, our lives have to be cleansed. <laughs> our temple has to be cleansed. You know, we're very, we're very busy. We're very, I don't know, I like Psalms 107. It's become one of my favorite verses of chapters in Psalms because it really talks about the four ways we go wrong. Um, one is sort of ignorance. One is rebellion and one is, is addictions and, and, uh, compulsions and so on. And one is just plain busyness. And I think I can see myself in, in numerous of those scenarios, but the most interesting part of Psalm 107 is that in each case, as soon as somebody recognized they needed help and asked God for help, he provided it. And with each type of issue, he provided something different. He provided food and drink. He provided healing. He sa- it says he sent his word and healed them. Well, and we think that the word is Jesus. He, um, he breaks chains of iron. And so on, the Bible says. And for the busy person, <laughs> the, the, they call it the merchant, who's on the high seas. And it says that the, they, the swells up and down and they were fearing for their lives. And, and it says, but he calmed the storm. I think of, in that case, imbalance. That you're up, you're down, and life is just amazing. He brings balance to that. And he, they're the only group that actually is spoken of knowing where they want to go. They, they, and he takes them to their desired haven. And so if you have a chance, I would recommend reading Psalm 107 also. I think you'll find maybe something of yourself there. And I really appreciate that, that God notices we go wrong. There's a, there's a trap for us all. <laughs> and that as soon as you ask for help, he has a solution for that, a particular solution for your particular issues. He has a solution. Just ask. And immediately he comes and does what needs to be done. And our our temples need to be cleansed before our homes or our influence or our church, whatever you want to call our home, is a true witness to God. Our temples must be cleansed. So if you have a chance or when these uh, get published online, you can see my notes on it. Read these uh, chapters and read this. Read, Come to God and, and just whatever is bothering you, whatever has got you, <laughs> you know, he has the solution. He has the actual 
Uh, he knows you particularly. I particularly like, I think with Hagar, for example, she had a, she was an Egyptian maid. She produced Abraham's first child, but she was thrown out. And here, you know, she thinks to die. You know, his, her son was 14. He was, I think he's like a little baby out there under the bush. She puts him over there because she can't stand to see him die. But he's a 14-year-old boy by that time. And But I like it that God comes to her, this Egyptian slave, made to have a child and then cast out and so on. And he he finds her out in the desert, calls her by name, Hagar. You know, no, you're, the boy's not going to die He's 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 going to have a nations come from him too. He actually ends up with twelve children and nations, just like Isaac did. Unfortunately, those <laughs> those Isaac's people and I and um, what's his name, the Ishmael's Ishmael's progeny have been you know fighting ever since. But in any event, I like it that God found Hagar. God saw she was crying out. She thought bad things were going to happen. And he came and sought her and spoke to her by name directly with a solution to her need. And he has a solution to all of our needs. We, we have a choice which, which group we would be in. And I just highly recommend that coming to God with the problems, with issues, with the addictions, with the compulsions, with the busyness, with the ignorance, with Whatever it is, the rebellion, whatever's inside you that's tra- trapped you in a wrong direction and hurting you, God has the solution for you. Let's pray. Dear Father, before we can be an influence, we have to be cleansed. Before we can then be an influence for you and about you, we have to be cleansed. Please enter our heart's temple with your Holy Spirit. Clean out anything that's wrong there. We trust you enough to open our hearts wide to allow your Holy Spirit to fill us without reservation. Because while perfect love casts out fear, fear casts out love. Teach us not to fear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.